As we've already mentioned today, it is indeed a blessed occasion and occurrence that has brought us together. As often as the New Testament speaks about the privilege of worship, and yet you and I have participated today as we've sung songs with spirit and understanding, as we have prayed to our Heavenly Father. And at least now for the next few moments, might we give some consideration to a section, a portion of the Word of God. As I begin the lesson, I'm a bit reminded about that text in Acts 14, 17, as it speaks about the rain from heaven that was provided by God, and how that that's a testimony to the greatness of Him. You and I appreciate that things need water, and yet our God provides it. Oh, how good a God we serve. This morning, as we study about baptism, I hope that as we do that, we'll ask a particular question, but along the way, we'll be able to appreciate some remarkable truths and some matters that can be a great encouragement to each of us as we think about what is involved in obeying the Lord. I entitled the lesson with a question, Baptized Again? Perhaps immediately we'll be ready to understand the character and the assertion that goes with that question. The great God of heaven dispatched His Son, Jesus the Lord, and He came to this earth that He might save sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15 highlights the fact that He came in the world to, in fact, provide the means of salvation. And aren't you and I thankful that He did? That message of salvation that He brought helps us notice then that there are things that must be obeyed. I'm reminded of Romans 6, 17, in which on that occasion to that congregation in Rome, Paul highlighted that truth when he said, But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart. That form of doctrine which was delivered you, and being made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. It's true then, isn't it, that they became the servants of righteousness in that they obeyed the truth. There was a powerful line that changed what they had been into what they now were. May I submit that, of course, you and I too must obey what God has said. As you and I study that today, it brings us to the bottom of that slide. The question will be surrounding the topic of baptism this morning, and specifically in the nature of this. From time to time, there are individuals who perhaps ask one of our elders or ask myself, a question, they will describe their own situation in baptism and they'll say, do you suppose I need to be baptized again? Do you think it wise that I should be baptized again? And so I've built this lesson around that topic. You may notice that a few weeks ago there was an article in our bulletin surrounding this, and I had actually planned on delivering this a little closer to that time, but in light of that well-written article, I decided to just postpone this one and bring it now. You and I today will have the precious opportunity to reflect on that sweet moment when we were baptized into Jesus. Please think back to that time. What a momentous event it was for you. That time when you relinquished control of your heart and life to the very Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And as you did that, you were baptized into Christ. It was a great event for you. Eternal consideration certainly was brought to bear on that occasion. And yet, as you think back to it, let's now study for the rest of the time today the character of, should I be baptized again? As we build this lesson and give some thought to it, there are several thoughts and we'll not need to spend too long on any one of them. But let's begin like this. 
first of all, give some appreciation to the role occupied by teaching. That was, in fact, a very strong and powerful part of the very commission Jesus gave those apostles. He had already been crucified, and yet he had been resurrected, of course, but spent a period of time teaching and sharing with them, providing evidence of his resurrection. It is in that light we come to verses like Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Some might even argue this is the key passage in terms of overall appreciation to the fullness of the book of Matthew. It says, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. You noticed it with me, didn't you? Prior to his reference to the act of baptism, he said, teaching them to observe all things. You'll notice then that baptism is a part of what must be taught. It is a part of what must be imparted by way of instruction to individuals. A person doesn't obey the commands of God just by dreaming something to be so, just by anticipating a degree of osmosis in terms of the Spirit hitting me on the head and telling me what I have to do. The Word of God has to be taught. There has to be instruction involved with what one must do in order to become a child of God. And aren't you and I thankful that instruction has been delivered, been bequeathed to you and me in the nature of the Word of God, and you and I can understand teachers then. Sometimes there are those that stand in pulpits. Sometimes there are just godly fathers and mothers and others who influence a young child or another person. Maybe you and I can think back to the time when some loving, influential person in our life, maybe a parent, maybe a preacher, maybe an elder, and said, have you ever thought about being baptized? Have you ever thought about reflecting on what Jesus did for you? I know you're a good person. You need to take that step. You ought to be thankful for people that cared enough about us to ask us a thought-provoking question like that. You'll notice this teaching brings us to perhaps some of the further essences of the great commandment. That great commission, as it sometimes might be said. Mark's version reads it like this in Mark 16, beginning in verse 15. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Notice, preaching was mentioned. Instruction to be, in fact, delivered and bequeathed. And then after that, he says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Notice, they were to believe what it was that had been preached. A moment ago, Cale led us in prayer, and he thanked the God of heaven for those faithful preachers, wherever they may be around the globe, preaching the truth of the Word of God. And of course, that truth includes references to and passages containing that statement concerning baptism. As you come to the next observation, you'll notice the early church took those matters so seriously. Acts 8 verse 4 reminds us that they went everywhere preaching the Word, those that were scattered abroad. They took that lovely message of the Word of God with them, and wherever they went, they preached it in its power and majesty. And so there were congregations established in so many different places as the book of Acts details. You might notice a couple of final thoughts. This consideration about teaching. It does 
insist upon us the importance of listening, doesn't it? After all, if there's no audience, if there's no students for whom the teacher is teaching, doesn't it highlight then the great lack of understanding and the likely success of it? No wonder then we're so thankful for students, and all of us strive to be good students. May we listen with attention. May we listen with effectiveness. It is this observation that also reminds us of one immediate thought about baptism. What about the baptism of an infant? Now, we've already noticed in Matthew's version, teach, can an infant learn? And by that I mean, can they learn the Word of God as a six-month-old or a one-month-old, even a one-year-old? We don't find a single example anywhere in the Bible of baptizing an infant. Jesus didn't command it. The apostles didn't practice it. The early church gives us no record of it. And you and I would appreciate in light of the fact that one must believe. Notice Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized. An infant's not in position to believe. Their mental powers and capability haven't developed sufficiently for that. We would thus be quick to say that that infant is in a safe condition. That infant is not in position to need baptized at that point. That will come later with the understanding that that individual has now reached a point of knowing wrong from right, knows that Jesus has died for him or her, and then upon that understanding they're in a lost condition. And then the gospel plan of salvation is what's needful for them. What about the second point? In addition to that truth, what about this one? As you give thought to those matters, what about then the plan of salvation? You and I notice as we study the Word of God together that there is a plan. Some call it a scheme of redemption. The word plan means something has an orderly character to it. It has a devised arrangement. So it is with the plan of salvation. As you and I study the 27 books of the New Testament together, we so readily find example after example, especially in the book of Acts, about individuals who subscribe to the plan. May I ask you to note this? Paul, as he began this section of the Roman letter, in Romans chapter 10, verses 13 and following, it reads like this, "...whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved." But how shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe on Him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? You'll notice one more time with me that there is a particular plan. Hearing is required, and following that, belief is then demanded on that which is heard. And you'll notice all that culminates with calling on the name of the Lord. God's plan of salvation is not a haphazard concoction, is it? It is a systematic step, and our God is not a God of confusion. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34, or rather 33 and 40 tell us. And so note with me this set of plans. The Lord Himself demanded belief. Nobody can be saved from his or her sins without belief in Jesus Christ. That person must believe that. And in John 8, verses 21 to 24, the Lord put it in this language, Except ye believe that I am He, ye shall die in your sins. That belief involves conviction. 
It's not just a mental assent to the truth of something. It's an understanding that I am guilty. Those on the day of Pentecost, when they heard Peter and the others preaching, they were pricked in their heart, it says. That word touched them. They understood they were guilty. And that understanding prompted them with some remaining activities. Notice with me, belief must precede baptism. You can't be baptized and then afterward claim to believe and suppose that that was an acceptable baptism. The belief has, is a prerequisite to it. Not only that, consider repentance. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, those very individuals on the day of Pentecost, it was they who cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They understood well that all wasn't well with their souls. And as they made that plea, notice, they already believed, they were convicted in their heart of what they had done. Notice what it was by inspiration that Peter told them, Repent and be baptized. Repentance came before the baptism. One more time, one couldn't be baptized and then afterward repent and suppose that that was a satisfactory baptism. The ordering of the plan hasn't been understood and at least it hasn't been respected. One more time, we notice the vital character of this point. Notice also we appreciate confession. You and I understand that when a person upon that belief and upon that repentance, then makes that decision that I would like to be immersed into Christ, I wish to be baptized, that person is asked a vital question. Do you believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God? Now we ask that question because of verses like Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. On that occasion we read, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. That confession, notice, is unto salvation. It's not salvation yet. It's unto it, meaning it has to precede the baptism. May we say again, if a person is immersed and then only later makes a statement of confession, there wasn't a respect for the ordering. Aren't we thankful for verses in the Bible that help us understand the wonderful plan of God's salvation? And so it is, you notice, then we arrive at baptism. After a person has then believed with conviction and, and thus made acts of repentance and made that statement of confession, then that person is a candidate for immersion into Christ. That leads me to make this point, which is the bottom of that slide. Any individual that was immersed, not having satisfied these prerequisites, would be in position to need to be re-immersed or at least immersed scripturally for the first time. You'll notice that that's one of the things that a preacher or any person does as an individual comes forward. There's a few moments of conversation in which the preacher makes sure that that person understands and knows these truths. That way, the baptism can be one that's highly respected, not only for the blessing of that person's life, but of course within the very annals of the halls of heaven. No wonder you and I then should be patient when a person comes forward. There may need to be a few moments of discussion and conversation so that the preacher and that individual are convinced that the gospel plan has been followed to that point. As we close that slide, you'll notice... Doesn't it lead us to point number three? 
This next point highlights a matter of authority. As you and I think about baptism, what is involved in being immersed into Christ? You'll notice that we could ask this question, on what basis is this activity being done and why is it being pursued this way? I start that slide like this. And every one of us need to be mindful of allowing a person, whether young or old, to make this decision. When a person comes forward, it ought not be just because dad and mom wants me to. It doesn't need to be simply because the elder or the deacon wants me to. It doesn't need to be simply because a friend did it. Those are not good enough reasons because on what authority is this based? Notice again what Jesus said in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And that follows that truth, baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. It is a sweet, sweet observation when that individual in that moment recognizes, I am a sinner and I want to have my sins washed away. And it is in this act that that takes place. And although parents may have influenced, and although elders and others may have influenced, it needs to be that person's decision. The authority is vested in response to the Word of God. I've tried to ask you to consider it like this. And all things whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Those words of Colossians 3.17 help us understand the fact then that obedience to the gospel is an individual matter. I can't obey for you, nor can you for me. And that's also true of parents and others for children. When a young person comes forward, or yeah, even perhaps one that's a bit older, it is a great occasion. It really is. But it's an occasion that's founded on authority vested in the Word of God, not in what a preacher may say, even what an eldership may believe, but founded on a thus saith the Lord. As you and I then think about our own moment of baptism, this is another time to reflect, and this is again one of the things a preacher or other person would make sure of. When a person comes forward, you're not just doing this because a friend did it. And you're not just doing this because someone wants you to. You're doing this because you know that you're a sinner. And you know that Jesus died on the cross for you. And you know this is required to have those sins forgiven. And when a person can affirm his or her understanding of that, then that baptism can proceed. Isn't that a sweet observation and a powerful one at that? Sometimes as you think about those kinds of ideas, it brings us to the fourth observation. This fourth point, not only resting upon the matter of authority, but on the mode of the baptism. Now I realize that in an audience like this one, there may not be much issue or question about this, but on occasion, you and I have conversations with others at the workplace or perhaps others at school and their understanding may be far less keen than yours and mine. You and I know the world has a number of viewpoints on baptism. Maybe you've spoken on occasion with someone who believes as long as a little water was sprinkled over the person's head. Or maybe so long as some was poured on their head that that qualified as scriptural baptism. That isn't so. 
those occasions in which you and I encounter that word baptism in the New Testament. And I would ask you to begin nearly at the top of that slide with me. That word baptism is the Greek word baptizo, and quite frankly, it was transliterated instead of translated. The word literally means to immerse. It means to dip beneath, to plunge beneath. Something that's baptized, something that's baptizoed, is plunged beneath something. And sometimes in the Bible... There's a baptism of suffering in which a person is enduring an overwhelming degree of difficulty or anguish for some reason. But we know with regard to the topic of our discussion today that the person must be plunged beneath the surface of the water. Notice some of these qualifying descriptions with me. You'll notice that when John the Immerser, John the Baptizer was baptizing in John 3.23, the text expressly says he was baptizing where there was much water. Why? Because baptism requires a lot of water. A little pouring or sprinkling doesn't qualify. In addition to that, you'll notice the likeness found in Acts chapter 8. There we have a wonderful presentation about the response of an Ethiopian nobleman a eunuch as he is referenced. And on this occasion when Philip spoke to him while they were riding in the chariot, here was the eunuch that said, Here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And isn't it a fascinating truth? The text says they both went down into the water. Now if Philip merely could have poured water on his head, why would Philip go into the water? If all Philip had to do was sprinkle some water on his head, why did he go down into the water? And yet the Holy Spirit has informed us both of them went down into the water. And you and I understand why. Because baptism requires submission, immersion beneath its surface. One of the final points you'll notice on that slide is the inspired writer's description of what is, in fact, a baptism. It's a burial. That was the lesson text read in her hearing just a few minutes ago. In Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, as Paul addressed the church in Rome, it was to them, he said, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. It is forever then a truth that baptism is a burial. And there's not a funeral home that with any degree of respect or ethnicity or correctness can sprinkle dirt on a corpse and claim that's baptism. It doesn't work that way. In fact, federal law won't permit it. May I say then that baptism is a burial and that leads us to the bottom point. If an individual upon reflection of his or her baptism recalls it to have been a pouring or a sprinkling that that was not scripture baptism and that person never was really baptized what about the next point what else might we say in terms of our thinking and understanding concerning baptism we alluded to this earlier but perhaps it's time to cast a stronger spotlight upon it I've merely entitled this one the reasons as to why we all understand that there can be a great deal of influence in peer pressure. Maybe you've spoken with individuals who, as they reflect on their own baptism, 
a friend of mine went down the aisle that night, and I did too. Several years ago, uh, an elderly lady approached Denise and me. And as she thought back to her baptism, that was basically what she said. A good friend of mine came forward that night, and as I think back over these 50-odd years or so, I'm not sure, but what I did it simply because she did. Would you baptize me? I was happy to. Because she wasn't sure that the proper reasons as laid out in the Word of God were characteristic of her response that original night. Look at what some of the things the Bible reminds us. Baptism is so significant. Notice, baptism is not to join the church. Nowhere does the Bible use the word join in a way like that. Furthermore, as you and I appreciate it again, not to please my parents, my friends, my aunts, my uncles, the reasons are far more profound than that. As you begin to look at some of the remaining ones with me, first, baptism is absolutely required in order to be saved. Jesus said that. And therefore, one can't believe I'm already saved and then submit to baptism under the expectation that that's an acceptable baptism. Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. The baptism precedes the salvation in the same way that repentance preceded it. And thus, as you appreciate, baptism is required for the forgiveness of sins. We noticed that a moment ago as we highlighted that text in the Roman letter Paul said we're buried with Christ. Where is it then that we avail ourselves of the salvation offered through the blood of Jesus? Nowhere does the Bible say that comes in belief. Nowhere does it say it comes in repentance. Nowhere does it say it comes in confession. It does say, though, that it comes in baptism. As you look at some of those verses I've asked you to consider, isn't it a remarkable truth that Paul is exhibit A? Here was a man who himself on the road to Damascus had seen the Lord. That blinding light had brought an essence of blindness upon him for three days. And here was a man beset with confusion. He knew he wasn't right, though priorly he thought that he was. For three days that man was in a state of a great deal of uncertainty. He knew things weren't right, but he didn't know yet what to do. Because God, had, rather the Lord had told him, Go into the city and it will told, be told thee what thou must do. Acts 9 verse 6. Wasn't it true that the God of heaven dispatched Ananias to come to that man? And in Acts twenty two sixteen, Paul himself tells us what Ananias told him. What better evidence could we have? And why tarriest thou arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord? Saul was not saved on the road to Damascus. Here, Ananias told him he was still in his sins when he got to Damascus. Despite the fact he had talked with the Lord on the road to Damascus, he'd been blinded for three days, despite the fact he'd been fasting for that whole period, beset with anguish and turmoil in heart, he wasn't saved. His sins hadn't been forgiven despite the fact he believed, despite the fact that he had already repented. What was missing, he hadn't been baptized yet. When he came to the city, Ananias told him, Why are you waiting? It's time to be baptized and wash away your sins. It's in baptism that those sins are washed away. 
Have you ever wondered what it would look like if we could see how black that water's got to be? It washes sins away, and it's not the power in the water, mind you. It's the power in the blood that's contacted by virtue of it. You and I often, we wash a load of clothes, and that water perhaps is so dirty and filthy after you've worked outside all day. Think about the blackness of sin. And yet the person coming out of that water is pure, white, clean as snow, and in so doing, it is a beautiful thing to behold. Look at the other reasons. The Bible helps us appreciate that it's in baptism that one is put into Christ. You're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Galatians 3.27 And therefore a person who believes he or she is in Christ and then later is baptized has misunderstood baptism. And their baptism was rather faulty. Notice the next one. It is in baptism that we access the remarkable power available through the crucifixion and the shedding of the blood of Jesus. We know that it is through that plan that we have access to salvation. And yet baptism is the culminating act. At the bottom of that slide, you'll notice this with me. At the moment then that a person's baptized, Jesus washes the person's sins away. And Jesus adds that individual to the church. Previously, that person wasn't a member of the church, but now they are. And not because the preacher voted them in, and not because the elders decreed it so, but because the Lord Jesus Christ etched it in the halls of heaven and put that person's name in the book of life. And that's remarkable. When you and I witness a baptism, it's no wonder we grin and we are so happy because of the decision that person made and because of its eternal consequence for them. As we come near the bottom of that slide, isn't it true that in baptism a person is made alive? They were dead in sin before. According to Ephesians 2 verses 1 and 2, they were dead in sin, but now they're alive they not only are alive physically, but far more critically, they're alive spiritually. They're in Jesus. Their sins have been washed away, and they can walk faithfully till death and know that a home in heaven is theirs. You'll notice in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen that one is baptized into the church. And as you and I highlight then that wonderful moment of baptism, it leads us to then to make those comments at the bottom. If a person was baptized or allowed themselves to be immersed without at least an appreciation of the majority or at least some degree of these matters, for instance, if they thought they were saved before baptism, if they thought that they were already in a saved relationship prior to baptism, then that original baptism was rather faulty and they need to seriously reconsider immersion again. One last thing in the lesson will be yours. As we've studied these reasons, it brings us perhaps to a keener question of our understanding. And I'm sure, like me, you've pondered this much. As we grow in Christ, often at the time of our baptism, we're babes in Christ in many ways. We haven't yet that depth of appreciation. We haven't yet acquired that fine-tuned and rather deep understanding of many features in the Bible. It is in light of that, it seems to me, that 
these thoughts would be in order. It may be that as a person is baptized, he or she doesn't understand to the final degree everything we've said this morning. But they have to understand those major parts. They cannot have appreciated that they were saved before baptism and that be all right. Or they can't think they were a member of the church prior to the baptism and that was okay. As you and I grow in Christ, maybe these final comments are in order. Look at the understanding that some of those in the Bible had on the day of Pentecost. Here were Jews. They, for the first time that morning, that very day, had heard the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. First time that day. They heard about Jesus' death and what it meant in terms of the fullness of what it brought about. They heard for the first time the avenue and the nature of that church that His blood had purchased. For the first time, they became apprised of that. They surely didn't know the fullness and the greatness of it, but they knew enough that they knew they were in sin and they knew what they needed to do. It may be there's somebody in this audience today like that. You know you're a sinner. Oh, as you grow in Christ, you'll learn more and more as the passing days come. But there's a certain basic amount. If you know that Jesus died for you, if you know that His blood purchased the church, and if you know that there's a plan of salvation put in place by which you can contact His blood, you know enough. And that point forward, your, own, your understanding will heighten, it will deepen, it will grow. Not only that day of Pentecost, what about that work of Philip in Acts 8, verses 12 and following? One more time, here were Samaritans. They were individuals you and I would well appreciate. They were somewhat knowledgeable of things of God, but oh, they needed to know a lot more. Philip preached to them the basics of the name of Jesus Christ and the reality of baptism, and many of them were baptized. They knew that that's what they needed. May I submit if... You have never been baptized today, but you know those things are true. Don't put this off. You may never be as close again as you are to the kingdom of God today. If you need to be rebaptized, or may I say immersed in a proper way, we'd be delighted to talk with you. Our elders would, I would. If we could be of assistance in that way, this lesson today has been designed in such a way to just prompt us to understand what baptism is about. As we draw the lesson to a close, the invitation is extended. This is a convenient time. Please understand, though, that any time, day or night, is a convenient time in some ways because eternity is at stake. However, this song has been chosen. If right now you know that you have never been immersed into Jesus, but you know you need to be because of the things we've discussed today, you do believe Jesus to be the Son of God, and that belief is now leading you to be willing to do something about it. Repent of the sins in your heart and life. Make a determined effort not to commit those things again. The Lord will strengthen you and be with you in the days ahead. We'll ask you to make a public confession of that belief, and then we'll happily immerse you into Jesus. As we do that, though, as you walk a new creature in Christ thereafter, you will have the strength and sustenance and power of His Word and His presence with you. If you have become a Christian at some former time, but that really seems like a long time ago, 
it seems as though you have allowed yourself to be distanced from the truth of the Master. You realize the Bible does tell about coming back to your first love. If you are being guilty of sins that are known publicly, you want brethren to know of your change in heart and life, and we will all be happy to pray to God on your behalf. Why not let that be known today if you would? If any of these things are needs in your life, don't delay, don't wait another moment, but why not come now while we stand and sing?